0: It's time for Brainerd Outdoors on B93.3. Brought to you by the Power Lodge, SCR Northern, Thielen Meats, Weimer Outdoors Archery Pro Shop, s Bait & Tackle, Oars & Mine Marine in Crosby, Ice Sports. Custom Fish Houses, Bermol Shoe Store in Randall, and by Radco, your truck accessory pros. Now, here's your host for Brainerd Outdoors, Brian Moon. And welcome into this week's show. Plenty to cover as always in this strange time that we're living in right now. Uh, Nate Blazing with SNW Guide Service is going to drop by, to talk about what's new with the Walleye Alliance, uh, some things that they're doing actually to uh, help tournament anglers who are kind of getting a little depressed about the fact that uh, a lot of tournaments are being canceled, but there's a new app out there that maybe people can use they might like. So we'll talk about that. We'll also talk about uh Crowing Soil and Water, Melissa Barrick will join us and talk about how they're still getting trees out to people who ordered from their tree sale, plus a whole lot more. It's all on this week's edition of Brainerd Outdoors. And we kick the show off. Once again, one of our uh, contributors here to Brainerd Outdoors, and that is Nate Blazing with SW Guide Service. And, Nate, uh, you've been a very busy guy. I mean, there's a lot going on right now uh, as far as... You know, what what people can do, what they can't do, and all that. But uh, the one thing we can do is get outside.
1: Yes, we can, and I think that is what's keeping a lot of people's sanity at this point. Even if you're somewhat limited, just being outside is making a big difference. So hopefully Mother Nature quits kind of playing with us and we get some sun and some warm weather, and I think that'll help everyone totally.
0: So where I mean, basically I'm looking, ice outs happened on a lot of lakes, Um how far are we off from maybe doing some crappie fishing here pretty soon?
1: I think we're pretty darn uh, close to that happening. Actually, I'm hoping this weekend uh, to maybe drag the kayak or the canoe into a couple of the smaller local lakes by my house and and giving it a whirl. I'm not expecting for, you know, any too much on the catching side of things, but at at the same time just getting out and getting some fresh air and be on the water would be a good thing. But, um, you know, the sun right now is pretty powerful so it shouldn't take too long once uh the temperatures get back up there that those water you know temps in the back dark bottom bays warm up and the fish will start doing their thing I mean right now I think if you concentrate on the staging areas just out in front of where they spawn that's where the fish are so uh, I haven't been out there recently but I think if you do that people are going to catch some fish so the panfish fishing should be good to go here fairly soon, I'm hoping.
0: A person really would want to concentrate, I would think, on wherever their late ice uh, favorite hot spots are. Right now would be probably the place to go, right?
1: Yeah, um, and it was kind of interesting here, late ice, I did do a fair amount of panfish fishing. It was really interesting to see how those fish... My, were migrating literally on a day-by-day basis close into, closer to their spawning areas. You could almost follow each day it was a little more progression towards that. And so the last uh, time I was out, they were not too far away from where they usually spawn on a couple of these lakes. So again, yeah, I would say, you know, where you ended up ice fishing is probably a good spot to start and then just kind of work around that general area and they should be in the, the same area.
0: Are there any places you like to hit for, you know, that first open water crappie fishing season um, in the area? Are any lakes better than the other right now, Nate? Or is it just basically where people, you know, if they have their favorite spot, go
1: to that? Well, again, I think a lot of it relates to water temperature. So generally speaking, I start on the smaller lakes, the shallower lakes, the the darker bottom parts of lakes or even the the smaller bays if you're on a bigger lake just cuz again once that water temperature gets warmer that's going to dictate when the fish start doing their spawning stuff. The bigger lakes the same thing. I mean, you just go a little further off of where they usually spawn and they're staging there, so you might be fishing a little deeper on those big lakes, but we've got so many of the small lakes in this area, you know, and people are kind of particular about how much information they give out, but Just look at the DNR website and find crappie numbers, and uh, it's not too hard to figure out which lakes are good and which aren't. But those smaller lakes, for sure, are generally where I start, and then I start working at the bigger lakes. And those bigger lakes tend to have, you know, the the biting panfish on the spawning time that goes a little longer. Those shallower lakes, smaller lakes that warm up faster, they do their thing, and then they start moving back off of their beds and such. So that's kind of the general rule of thumb that I follow at least.
0: One of the things that came out, uh, this week, Nate, was the fact that the DNR is not going to do, you know, the stocking. They're not doing the egg stripping that they normally do up in that Pine River area. Um, I, were you surprised by that?
1: I, I wasn't surprised, Brian. I mean, I was hopeful because I really think that makes a big difference and I know, uh, some people do have differing opinions on it uh, they might think it harms the body water that they're collecting the eggs from uh, i don't particularly feel that way i think it's more beneficial to the area as a whole and the state as a whole but you know being out there and watching those dnr workers do that um, i don't think you could really expect them to put themselves in harm's way for what they have to do um so Again, I was hoping that maybe this stuff would play out sooner than later and they'd be able to do it, but totally understand the decision, and, you know, I I, I get it. Um, the thing that it made me feel, though, in terms of back to the Walleye Alliance, in terms of trying to buy fingerling and help stock stocking efforts that way, I think it's going to be even that much more important for groups to do that, you know, this year into the fall and such, if we can find fingerlings to purchase to help implement the stocking efforts since, they're not going to be able to strip the eggs this year. So, And, and the DNR does say they don't think it'll make an overall impact, um, just one-year class. But at the same time, as a fisherman, you just don't like to see that gap. So we'll just do what we can do, and hopefully it'll help out in some manner.
0: Speaking of the Walleye Alliance, uh, any news on, I I know you talked about when we had you on the last time, uh, your Walleye Alliance banquet, you pretty much thought that was going to be done. You guys had a tournament coming up here uh, this summer. Where are we at with that right now?
1: Yeah, so again, uh, the the status of what's going on here is pretty much affecting everyone. And Um, our banquet, which was supposed to be April 23rd, we ended up finally making the decision of canceling that. And basically what we're hoping to do is just kind of combine that with our winter seminar, which is usually in December. Um, and then still keeping our big annual banquet banquet in that April month. But, uh, we just figured that was the right thing to do. Talked about rescheduling in the summer, but you know how people's schedules are in the summer and, um, with still some unknowns out there, we decided to just push it off a little bit further till winter, and that's kind of where we landed. The other thing that it did affect is our spring tournament that we we're having on golf for uh, May sixteenth. I also decided to just cancel that for this year, even though we had the permit. And some kind of the idea that we came up with, and I'm pretty excited about it, is in lieu of that, we have uh, developed an online fishing tournament through the Fish Donkey app and that starts opener, and it goes through the remainder of May. You can fish any Minnesota state waters, and I think it's a $50 entry fee. Um, We got some pretty darn nice payouts, so if you're interested in that, just download the Fish Donkey app and uh, type in walleye lines in the search, and it'll take you right to it and give it all to you, and it's basically, you catch a fish, you put it on a measuring board, take a picture of the whole fish so you can see how long it is, and it's Your biggest fish per person. You can enter many of them, but just your biggest one would win. And we kind of got it, I think, first through 10th place. It's a good payout. And then we staggered it kind of like the JCs do, where 20th, 25th, and then 30th, we have a pretty nice prize pool there for money. So hopefully, uh, I think people will really like that. And with all the tournaments that are getting canceled, a lot of people. Are looking for an alternative, and this online thing seems to be the way to go for right now, at least.
0: You know, and that's the one thing. Talking to a lot of people that are tournament fishermen, um, they this is a tough thing for them right now, and uh, because they look forward to all of this. And like you said, all these tournaments that are getting canceled now for obvious reasons. Um, right now, it's it's a different world we're living in
1: yeah and i mean i'm uh, (laughs) i'm doing the same thing yeah there's there's an online circuit right now that's called head-to-head fishing and you know i i've been watching quite a bit of that just kind of almost dreaming through people it's in over in wisconsin that they're able to do it but a lot of the tournament guys are getting pretty frustrated with it and looking for different alternatives to do so we figured we're going to give this first one you know a two-week period kind of a trial and if it works as We hope it will. Um, It's something that we're hoping to keep going throughout the month and probably, or throughout the the summer, I should say, and probably have different tiers. So um, have a more expensive one with a bigger purse and then a smaller, lower entry-level one for, you know, more or less kind of a fun activity for families kind of stuff. So we're hopeful that this will take off and kind of give some folks entertainment and a different type of tournament to fish in. So we'll see. Yeah, that's for sure. What's that
0: app again, Nate?
1: It is fish donkey, Um, and like you said, you just go download, it's a free app, and then uh, it'll give you a search feature, and you just type in Walleye Alliance, and uh, it'll take you right to it, and it gives all the specifics and the rules and the entry fee you pay right online, so it's pretty slick. Uh, We kind of vetted that out a couple times before we decided to finally publicize it, and we put it on our Facebook page, and we'll be getting that on our website here within the next couple days.
0: So there you go. So you can check that out. It's Nate Blazing. He is with the S&W Guide Service. Uh, And one thing, Nate, before I let you go, how how are the bait shops doing right now? I know know, with Sherry and stuff at S&W, I I, I imagine this is a tough time for them as well.
1: Yeah, it is. The good thing, I I don't want to say good thing, but this is normally the quieter time of the year anyways because you're kind of in that transition between ice and open water. So Uh, They've been going through cleaning a whole bunch of stuff, you know, talked with Sherry quite a bit. She's put some safety precautions in there, Uh, so it's not really a huge issue right now with limited customer base. Come opener, that might be a different story, but it sounds like um, we just heard that the bait trappers and the dock folks are deemed essential, so they will still be able to do their normal business, and with the way the... The spring's going, it sounds like from hearing from the trappers, they're pretty hopeful for that spot-tail shiner run at least, that there should be a fair amount of minnows around, and so that could change, but right now it's sounding fairly promising, so we're we're hoping that'll be the case because that's one of the main uh, baits that we use here for in the area for opening for walleyes at least. So I'm I'm hoping that's going to play out as they're expecting.
0: Yeah, we'll keep our fingers crossed because uh, every day is uh, new news. There's no doubt about that. But uh, hopefully, yeah, I mean, all systems go for for fishing opener would be great. It's Nate Blazing with s Guide Service. Uh, Nate, if people want more information on you, how can they get it?
1: Sure. You can, like you mentioned before, you can call up to the bait shop and ask Sherry for my contact information or book trips there. Otherwise, you can find me on Facebook and then Walleye Alliance, the same thing. You can look up Walleye Alliance on Facebook or our website is www.walleyelines.com.
0: There you go. I appreciate the info as always, buddy. You stay safe and we'll talk to you soon, okay?
1: You as well, Brian. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks.
0: More of Brainerd Outdoors after this on B93.3. Whether it's for fun, sport, or hunting, if you love to shoot, you know it's important to go to a gun shop that has everything you need. That's Freedom Firearms in Brainerd. Freedom Firearms isn't a huge gun shop, which means Russ, the owner, attends to his customers. They carry rifles, shotguns, pistols, suppressors, distance precision rifles, plus ammo and accessories and gunsmithing. Plus, they offer $25 transfer fees. Buy, sign, or trade at Freedom Firearms, two blocks east of the historic water tower between Little Caesars and O'Reilly. Welcome back to Brainerd Outdoors on B93.3 and a good friend of the show Melissa Barrick joins us. She is the district manager with Crowing Soil and Water. And I would imagine, Melissa, just like the rest of us, uh, you guys are kind of having to, you know, call some audibles here and there, and and have to deal and and make your way through this whole thing uh, over there at Crowing Soil and Water. Probably kind of the same deal, huh?
2: Yep. So uh, our office closed because um, we're in the Crowing County Land Services building, so it's closed to the public. And uh, we've been having um, staff uh, kind of work remotely and trying to figure out the different items that we can do and can't do. And uh, one of the things we we're probably most concerned about was our, our tree sale. And if we were going to be able to get all of our trees, because um, we do get some of our trees from one of the state nurseries. And we just got word, which we're super excited, that we're going to get all of our trees and plants. And so um, I just wanted to tell a little bit about how we're going to uh, do our, our tree sale um, this year as a part of the COVID-19 uh, crisis. So um, first of all, again, we are still planning to do the tree sale, and we're going to make it uh, ensure that both the public and employees can stay safe. Um, and so we will be um, instead of typically we've had our trees in the in the Crow Wing County um, curling building at the fairgrounds and we had people come in and be able to look around and ask questions Um, but this year we're going to just do a curbside pickup Um, so we're asking all the people that are coming to get their trees to use the the curling county main gate um, and then um, we'll have somebody there that will be able to go and grab your order, and we'll just place it into your car. Um, and that way, hopefully, we're not going to get anybody uh, exposed to anything. Um, and we'll be taking additional um, precautions for staff uh, to ensure that, you know, as we're bundling the trees and stuff, that we are also uh, using the CDC recommendations um, but the great news about tree planting is, it's still one of those things you can do. Um, and so, um, again, I just want to emphasize that we're doing it um, May seventh and May eighth from eight to five. And uh, again, use that main gate at the Crow Wing County Fair. Um, and we'll be put, we'll be sending out information to all of the people that ordered trees. Um, As well as we'll be posting stuff on our website and our Facebook page. Um, And I just also wanted to chat a little bit about um, why we do the tree program. Um, So this year um, we sold almost 30,000 trees. um, And the main goal of this tree program is to get people involved um, to be able to do something on their property um, that kind of benefits the soil and water of the area. And, you know, we have some really great lakes around here, great fisheries. Um, And a lot of those are because we have really nice forests around here to kind of keep that that water clean. And so this is a great opportunity for anybody all ages to be able to go and um, plant some trees and um, uh, do something good for your community. Um, And so I just want to take the opportunity to thank all of our customers, because really, (laughs) in the end of the day, they have all the hard work of actually doing the labor to plant the trees. Um, but we just, uh, always love our tree sale. It's a great time to connect with customers. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have been planting trees for years and years and it's a great way to kind of establish a legacy. Um, I don't know how many people remember in a kid when you got a little seedling and you went home and planted that seedling at your house and you kept watching it grow and watching it grow. Um, it, it is amazing how, um, how fast they grow. I mean, sometimes it feels like it takes forever, but, um, you know, at the same time, it's cool to see that you planted that tree and that it's growing.
0: Yeah, and I think you bring up a really, really good point, Melissa, and the fact that, um, you know, people right now, that's the one thing they can do is get outside. I've noticed a lot of people that are really getting into gardening this year. Uh, they're really excited about planting flowers and all that other stuff, too. Um, and like you said, you know, with these tree sales, I bet you guys probably seen a little bit of an uptick, I would think, in probably your sales this year.
2: Oh um, yeah, we had a, a good year. You know, it's always hard to know uh, the prediction of how many trees we're going to sell. But um, and one of the questions we have gotten is, is kind of what do we have available if, if people can still order. Um, and the best way to check that is is our our website. So our website again, if you Google just Crow Wing SWCD tree sale, um, it'll pull up and you can look and see what's available. We don't have a whole lot left, but you can order whatever on that website. Um, and then, uh, we do have some trees that we order extras, um, just to, um, ensure that we get everyone's orders right because we are kind of hand-picking all these different orders. And so there's always, uh, some type of mistake from, um, either the nursery themselves or ourselves of, you know, trying to pack all these orders. Um, and so on Friday, um, we will have some available. Um, and we will be using social media to let people know what that what those are available. But we are asking everyone to just pay online so that we don't have to deal with any um, any money, um, as well as if you can't pay online, you can send us a check in the mail.
0: How difficult was it, Melissa, for you guys to get the go-ahead to get those trees from the nursery?
2: Um, you know, I wasn't sure. Uh, I guess Wisconsin, they closed, other, I think, their state nurseries. Um, But the good thing is is that we ordered early. We always order early, and so they were able to fill the orders that came first. Um, So I'm not sure how many people are going to be getting their trees um, or how Bedora is um, handling this. Um, So I'm not positive, but, I mean, I guess the good thing is um, the governor did include nurseries and landscaping as a part of the essential work. Um, So I'm hoping that will help them be able to get those trees out um, and, you know, we're thankful that we're able to get all these trees to all of our customers.
0: For sure, yeah, because I, I think that's something, like like you said, that's something people can do right now. They can get outside, and they can plant and, and do things like that. And like you said, I, I thought you brought up a really good point, too, in the fact I remember when I was a little kid, you know, when you get that little, you know, seedling and you'd plant it, and it was like watching, you know, something grow like that. Yeah, it takes time, but... That was amazing as a kid, and I I think more and more kids are going to get involved in stuff like this.
2: Yeah, and it's just a great way to um, do something in your own property. Um, And we also do have seed mixes available, those who usually sell in our office all year. Um, And then we can also mail those, too, if you miss those. Um, and the other thing I just want to mention is we do have a goal for Cromwell County or Brainerd Lakes is to get up to a million trees. And so um, as of right now, since we started our tree sale, we're about almost 800,000 trees, uh, again, that customers have planted. Um, so, I, again, I, I want to give credit to all the people that are going out there and doing something um, for their property or for their community.
0: One last time, Melissa, if people want to pick those trees up, uh, dates and times and location.
2: Um, Again, it's at the Crow Wing County um, Fairgrounds Main Gate, um, May 7th and May 8th, and it's uh, 8 to 5 p.m.
0: There you go. That's Melissa Barrick. She is the district manager with Crow Wing Soil and Water. Melissa, I appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for all the work you guys are doing. I know you guys are working hard, and uh, we will talk to you soon. Stay safe, okay?
2: Okay, you too. Thank you very much.
0: More of Brainerd Outdoors after this on B93.3. Rainard Outdoors on B93.3 and kind of a treat this week. Uh, We're going off the beaten path a little bit and uh, a lot of people are out and about doing a lot of shed hunting. That's something that's become very popular and this year's been perfect for it because we don't have any snow and it's going to be beautiful all weekend long. Uh, So I thought I'd go down a different path with this week. Uh, A lot of people are actually... Trading their dogs to hunt for sheds, your bird dog, uh, to hunt for shed antlers, and I, I thought we'd bring in Josh Miller, and Josh is with Riverstone Kennels in New Richmond, Wisconsin, and also affiliated with Sport Dog um, to uh, kind of give us the rundown on how to go about this. Uh, Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. I'm excited to meet you. Here. Yeah. A little background on you. Uh, obviously, you, you run Riverstone Kennels there in New Richmond, but you've got a pretty uh, deep background in in training dogs and and doing a lot of bird hunting.
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I found out at a very young age that I was very passionate about not only you know hunting but about dogs. Uh, there's something you know about the dogs, about watching a good dog in the field work that really drew me to the sport and really kind of let you a know, little little fire inside of me. And and I kind of went with that passion I ran with it. And I was able to work with some of the best trainers, you know, who I believe are some of the best trainers in the country, and and really learn from them, learn, you know, what they do, why they do it. And I was able to kind of compile, you know, these different thoughts and training methods into, you know, what I believe is, you know, kind of my ideal training program. Um, and then, you know, obviously one of the, the best things that I have is, you know, with uh, those mentors of mine, uh, I have a lot of different ways in my back pocket that I can try to get a dog from point A to point B. So uh, I've been very blessed in the road that I've been able to travel to get to where I am today.
0: How long have you been at this, Josh?
3: I am going on about eight years now uh, training. And, uh, you know, what's so great about training for me is that every day is different. You know, I get to be outside, I get to be with these dogs, and... Uh, there's a lot of times that, you know, I'm down in the kennel well before the sun comes up, you know, doing chores, uh, you know, things that just have to get done. And no matter what, I could be in, you know, the worst mood, you know, not feeling well, no matter what, when I go down to that kennel and see how excited the dogs are to see me, how excited they are to go where uh, you can't help but put, you know, put a smile on your face. So uh, it, it's a really fun and rewarding uh, career that I've been able to have so far.
0: And you and I were kind of talking off air here when we were getting to know each other a little bit, and you've actually got some pelts on the wall and, and have done pretty well in some of these uh, competitions out there.
3: Yeah, yeah, we have. It's uh, It's been a wild ride. It's been really fun. Uh, you know, but, but with the shed hunting in general, or uh, particularly, uh, yeah, I, I've had a lot of success. Uh, in the last four years, uh, I have won the world championship three out of those four years because I was that I've trained. And, and kind of uh, a little more you know, icing on the cake was last year, I was able to win uh, the, the championship with a dog named Lester, And Lester was under two years old, which meant he was the first dog ever to win both the Open Championship and the Junior Division, which the Junior Division is dogs under two years old. It's the first time a dog has ever done that. So, uh, it's been very, again, very blessed with uh, a lot of very good dogs because you know, I couldn't do what I do if, if I didn't have a great dog with me.
0: Do you have a specific breed of choice?
3: You know, uh, really, yeah, I won't say that I have a specific breed of choice, um, but I will say that you know, if, if you're going to go out and you're going to say tomorrow, you're saying, say, I'm going to go get myself a dog that is going to be a shedding hunting dog, I would highly recommend going with the retrieving birds. And the reason being is that you, there, your reality is when you look at one of these antlers, although you and I, Brian, might get excited about it, those dogs, it is very hard to just get excited looking at one of those antlers. With these retrieving breeds, there's so much inside of them. Uh, just from years and years of breeding, that says I want to retrieve so bad that that's where you get that desire to you can funnel it into you want to retrieve. Here's what we're going to go do. We're going to go retrieve these uh, these shed antlers. Uh, so Labrador, Chesapeake, you know, these are kind of the dogs we see really excel at uh, at the, the shed antler hunting. But on the same token, we've had dogs in such as you know, eagles. Uh, 20-dog breeds that do very well at this, too. So it, it's not necessarily uh, limited to a retrieving breed, but if you really want to have a very high success at you know if I'm going to go pick out a puppy and start from scratch, a retrieving beast breed is probably going to be a
0: best bet. Well, let's dive right into it then, Josh. Uh, if somebody's looking to maybe train their dog to do this, um, what's where do you start from, from scratch? Obviously probably getting the right dog
3: right dog is everything. And, you know, we know that from, you know, years and years of going through the bird dog. Well, the shed dogs are no different. Uh, we really are going to look at the same things. When I look at a pedigree, I'm looking at titles. I'm looking at master hunters, field champions, uh, you know, national field champions, anything that has a, a designation that says this dog is proven, Those are the qualifications I am looking for, as many of them as I can get to getting, you know, that puppy. And what that pedigree is telling me is basically how I look at a pedigree is like a toolbox. And each one of those accolades that his parents, grandparents have, that is a tool inside that toolbox that's going to help me take this puppy and build that end product. to find what best suits me and a lot of times the breeders are going to be uh, great resources with it you know these breeders especially the very good successful breeders they are going to have the knowledge to really steer you in the right direction um, but yeah making sure that you get a dog that yeah, is very driven uh, retrieve drive is there Yeah, and kind of to use uh, an analogy you know, uh, Michael Jordan if he has a kid you know, the odds of him being a good basketball player are pretty good, right, just because of his, his pedigree, his background. Well, it's the same kind of thing with dogs. Uh, if we can take mom and dad that were great at what we're trying to accomplish, odds are that we can make you know their, their son or daughter great at it as
0: well. So when you start training your dog to hunt for sheds, do you want to maybe start something simple, uh, maybe even doing it indoors in like a hallway or something like that before you head outside, or, or do you think maybe you could start off a little bigger than that?
3: Starting off simple is always going to be the best way to go. Uh, we Especially at a young age, we want to make them fun. We want to make them successful. And how we make them successful is by taking baby steps. You know, the, the first time we get them around the shed, we finally get them going on it. We don't want to go plant it in the middle of a 100-acre cattail tail to say good luck. You know, we want to really build on, the you know, little successes to get to that end goal. And how I would start getting the dog excited about this is, again, going back to that antler, if you look at an antler, there's nothing exciting about it. We have to build that up. But, you know, if you look at, think about a tennis ball. If you look at a tennis ball, And and we all know these dogs that are absolutely crazy about tennis balls. You know, why are they crazy about tennis balls? You know, it's not because there's something, you know, inside of them saying, I want a tennis ball. But again, going back to the retrieve drive, the retrieve drive is there. So, you know, we've funneled that retrieve drive into a tennis ball because they're cheap, they're around the house, and easy to throw. Same thing with these sheds. If we can fill those sheds up like we do the tennis balls, we can make uh, those antlers, that you know that object that I just gotta have. So I will. I'd go as simple as having the dog there. You know, if it's a smaller puppy, I would do want a smaller antler something that they can handle. Uh, we just want to get them excited, and I use the command find the bone. So I just you know shake that around, find the bone, find the bone, find the bone. Short retrieve, get it back. You know, have a you know a successful short retrieve and build on those little success. Now with a lot of the sporting breeds. Uh, we see that that desire to please and that desire to work uh, often is, you know, reward enough. Uh, but there are a lot of times where if we get a dog that doesn't have a strong retrieve drive or a dog that uh, maybe next early isn't a sporting breed, something enticing like a treat can really make that uh, that antler, you know, that, that reward uh, through that breed.
0: And one last thing before we move on to the next step here, uh, Josh, and that is, uh, with the antler itself, do you want, how do you want to make sure that, that you know, the dog stays safe, too, because some of these can get pretty sharp?
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, what I would do is, again, starting with a small antler and working my way up. Um, you know, I never want to make it to where you know, I'm throwing an antler and it's bouncing all over the place and times are going all over. Um, what I would do is I would set, uh, set these antlers down and let the dogs go get them. I don't want to put them in a situation to get hurt. Um, and I could go as far as cutting times off to make sure, you know, as we're kind of getting rolling in it, that they're not going to hurt themselves. Uh, but, yes that but, you know, we don't see a whole lot, you know, that the dogs are, are going at these 100 miles an hour when they first start off. So, you are know, going to see the dogs kind of feel it out a little bit and see, you know, where they can hold and where they can't. But absolutely, safety has to be first and foremost.
0: Talking with Josh Miller with Riverstone Kennels in New Richmond, Wisconsin, and uh, basically running us through how to teach your dog to retrieve uh, antler sheds. Uh, once you get them retrieving really good, Josh, what's the next step? Now do you take it to the woods?
3: Not quite yet. You know we're, we're definitely working there. You know, remember we were talking about baby steps. You know, there's really if, if I'm looking at a shed dog, there's three things that that dog is going to give me that amplifies my success in the woods, which is uh, their sight, their sense of smell, which we know is incredible and ground coverage. And, and so how we get those three things is you know, after we get a dog that's really excited about it, we have to teach them that the sheds aren't coming from our hands all the time. Remember, we're getting them excited by doing short little tosses. So the next step would be I would go to the front yard. And the reason I go to the front yard is because I know it's open, I know he can see, and I know he's going to be successful. Again, building really not success. Uh, what I would do is I'd sit the dog down, walk out, and I'd plant that antler right in the middle of, uh, of the lawn where he can see it, and then I'd use that command release and that prime the bone. He's going to go out, he's going to pick up that antler and bring it back. What you're teaching him is that we have to go out and we have to go look for these rather than I'm going to throw these for you. As, as you get you know, down the road, what I use is called Rack Wax, and you can get it at a lot of retail stores, a lot of online stores to handle the product. But Rack Wax is what we use to replicate the smell that's coming off of these antlers. Now, there's not much of it, but in the training process, we want to, again, be as successful as possible. So we're going to load that antler up with wax and really start to get that dog to associate that smell with that antler. Uh, And that's how we kind of take that next step to really start kind of getting them to go out to go look the these ant.
0: You know, and I've seen that rack wax in stores before, and I always wondered what it was for. <laughs> now I know. Yeah,
3: absolutely, you know, So now we have you know, the site down as far as you know one of our uh, one of our advantages. Um, you know, we, we started to use the fence. now with the fence, Something that is very important is to keep in mind that the dog is looking for a scent that is on a stationary object. Why that's so important is because if we think about. Think about how a, a Labrador Retriever usually runs through a field looking for a fence, right? Nose to the ground, trying to pick up that fence trail. Well, that antler isn't going to leave a fence trail. Wherever it falls off that that deer's head is where it's going to lie. So we really have to be conscious of the wind. The wind is going to be how these dogs are going to be able to catch this fence and find these you know, more efficiently. So we're still up in the yard. Now I'm going to start to hide this this antler around in the yard. Uh, You could go behind a tree, uh, behind a bush, you know, in a flower bed. Um, Obviously get permission if you're going to the flower bed. (laughs) But um, we want to try to start to move this around to where, you know, the dog has to go out and start to look for the antler. Now, if we keep the wind in mind, what's going to happen is he's going to go out, he's going to start looking, he's going to catch that scent off that wind, and he's going to make that successful find. Once you're to the point that you're very efficient at this, that's when you can go to the woods and you can start planting these antlers in different locations and giving him a taste of what the real thing really like.
0: Where does human scent play in on this, Josh?
3: I'm glad you brought that up because human scent is probably the one thing that is overlooked more often than not. And what I mean by that is, you know we we have a lot of scent. Of our own. Hey, I mean, obviously, if we're archery hunters, I'm a big archery hunter myself. We think about that so much. We think about you know scent killer spray and scent lock clothing and you know playing the wind and all these things to try to eliminate our scent. But you'd be surprised how often people come to the kennel to drop off a dog for training. and They go, you know, I've been training with him myself to do this. He does it great when we're training. He does it great in the yard. He does it great when I plant him. But when we go out and we see the real thing. He runs over it like he has no idea what breed breathing out there looking for. More often than not, if that's the case, the dog is looking for your scent, not the scent of the antler. So we have to really go above and beyond and try to be as, as scent-free as possible. Um, this could be you know, washing your antlers, making sure that all your scent is, is off those antlers, uh, wearing rubber boots. And, and scent killer trying to eliminate any scent that's on there. Uh, just trying to be as scent-free as possible, uh, that's going to really try to replicate the live thing as much as you possibly can.
0: And I, I would guess once you get to the woods, Josh, uh, anything that the mistakes that uh, once you went through all this training and everything and your dog gets really good at it, are there mistakes that hunters will make once they take their dog to the woods that could you know, kind of compromise things?
3: Probably the biggest mistake that somebody can make while they're out in the woods is Taking a young dog out for hours at a time in an area that you're not going to find any antlers. You know, keep in mind, we talked about how this can be a a boring thing for a young dog if they're not really into it, right, because it's not that bird hunting. Uh, It'd be the same thing, actually, you could relate it to bird hunting. And If you take a young dog out that really hasn't been in the field much, and you go for a couple hours and not see a bird, you're probably going to see some intensity drop as well. So what I would do is, especially with the young dog, if I'm going to go out and I'm going to go on a live hunt, I'm going to bring some antlers with me, and that way if we go for a while and not find anything, I can give an antler a talk and let him have a find to keep that drive and keep that motivation of it so we do come across the live antler. Uh, the other thing would be, you know, if, if you're out and you're you know, hunting, and your dogs out there, and you see an antler, he will go pick it up. You'll let that dog come in. You'll guide guide him in there, and let him make that live find. Because as much as as myself or you try to replicate the live thing, there's nothing that is going to be exact.
0: We've always heard the old adage, you can't teach a dog, an old dog new tricks. If you have an older dog, are you still able to teach him how to do something like this, or are you better off starting off young?
1: I think you're always better
3: off starting, you know, starting young because you're starting with a blank canvas. What, what I will tell you is that uh, my first champion, uh, world champion, which was in 2011, a dog named Ethan, he's still my personal dog, um, he did not start doing this until he was five years old. So he had five years of his life before I kind of shook it up a little bit and said, hey, why don't we go try to find these ants? Uh, now, what I'll tell you is that it'll take a little more time because you are introducing something new to a dog that is a little more set in his ways. But if you have a dog with a lot of retreat drive, you're going to be very successful at doing that. Uh, and, and really, Brian, that's one of the best things about this sport is that we see so many people that are deer hunters and shed hunters already. That they have a dog at home that because of the time and commitment they give to your know, deer season in the fall, they don't have time to bird hunt, the dog doesn't really get to get out much. Now this gives that dog a season to look forward to, something to get you know, get out, get active and go hunt, and at the same time it's not taking any time away from being up in the sand.
0: So some great information there uh, with Josh Miller. He's with Riverstone Kennels in New Richmond, Wisconsin. If people want more information, Josh, on you and what you're up to, there's a couple of ways they can get that, right?
3: Absolutely. Uh, You can go on our website, which is www.riverstonekennels.com. We have a lot of information on there. You can get a hold of us on there. Um, Or you can feel free to email me at josh. At RiverstoneKennels.com, be more than happy to help out. You know anyone any way that I can. Um, you know, but it, it really is—it's a cool sport. It's a sport that is really starting to blow up and uh, and get bigger and bigger all the time. Uh, and uh, one that I would really encourage you to go do, especially if you're already out in the woods trying to find these shed antlers, you would be amazed at how much a dog can increase your odds of finding these antlers uh, out in the field.
0: So there you go. There's a couple of things for you to check out. Josh Miller, he's with uh, Riverstone Kennels in New Richmond, Wisconsin. Josh, I appreciate all the information. I hope to talk to you down the line here a little bit and uh, share some other insights that you have.
3: Uh, I do too, Brian. I'm uh, more than happy to, and I appreciate you having me on.
0: We'll have more Branded Outdoors after this on B93.3. Welcome back to Brainerd Outdoors on B93.3. Dan Zimmerman joins us once again. He's with the Brainerd Chapter of the National Wild Turkey Federation. And uh, we want to talk this week, Dan, about decoy placement because that can be kind of a a tricky thing too. The first question I have is what's the mistake that hunters make first and foremost uh, when they do place their decoys?
4: I think uh, having them covered up too much is kind of a big thing. You know, some people like to have them in tight you there might be a little bit too much cover in the the tom he can hear where it is but he also needs a visual and in order to get him brought in from a distance i think you know you got to kind of look at the fact that you got to get him out in the open where the tom can see him for a little ways and then you can work him and know that he's there they'll gobble and this and that but in nature you know it's the hen that's supposed to go to the gobbler not the other way around and if he can see her, he's more apt to, uh, you know, move in, into range. And you should try to find a, a strut zone, which is where, you know, turkeys like to be, and they'll strut and cut, you know, trying to bring in hens. And that's usually a little opening in the woods or in the brush where uh, he can see and be seen. That's, that's the whole idea. And if you can get your hen decoy into a bigger area like that, that's probably key with the decoy it should be a combination of things you know you can always get by with one hen decoy and that that generally does a good job because early in the season the hens are receptive to mating and and the gobbler is trying to get as many as he can late season um you know it might be the young of the year hen from you know a spring hen last year that doesn't go into a cycle until late in the season say uh mid to late may and then that's kind of like the deer season you know you have uh, early rut and late rut same way with turkeys you have an early mating season and then a few weeks later second cycle comes around
0: something else that's kind of becoming in vogue now is uh, bow hunting with turkeys that also decoys how you go about placing those come into play too
4: right the important thing there is the i i like to use and i have done this with a bow. i consider myself an avid archer as well is placing the decoys as such so that when the Tom comes around to fight your Jake he will be facing you from behind and what you want to do is aim your arrow at the vent of the turkey when he fans out just before he's going to attack your Jake so your Jake is gonna face you the Tom is gonna come around and be facing you from behind and that's when you want to take your shot. I mean, the vent is pretty white and then black feathers, and that's where you want to aim so that you can go right up through all the vitals. Uh, obviously, that's the ideal way to do it, but if you get a good side shot and he's coming around, you want to place that arrow behind the wing joint so that you'll hit a lung and, and maybe you know the heart itself. But those targets are very small, in a turkey by comparison to a deer. And that's why the vent shot is probably more so better. I know that, you know, a lot of good archers out there'll try and take the head off of a turkey with a guillotine, you know, two and a half inch broadhead and that's good, but that's gotta be a pretty good uh, close range.
0: And then for shotgun, Dan, is it kind of the opposite?
4: I wouldn't say opposite. It's better to have kind of a profile shot, so he might 45, you might want a forty five your decoys and as the turkey comes around or comes up you never know. It's it's always a crapshoot with these things. Once you think you got them figured out, it's, it changes and the game is totally different. But as far as placement goes, the, the tom, he'll want to come around in a circle and look at your decoy. But, uh, again, 45 in it maybe, having two decoys where the hen is in kind of the uh, receptive position or in the feeding position, I kind of call it sometimes, and then placing the jake right behind it that is when the tom comes in and he's ready for a fight. That is fighting words right there in turkey language.
0: Dan Zimmerman, he is with the National Wild Turkey Federation, the president of the Brainerd Lakes chapter. Dan, uh, great information as always from you, and uh, we'll get in touch with you next week and uh, chat some more.
4: Very good, thank you, and uh, good luck out there turkey hunters.
0: And that'll put a wrap on this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch Brainerd Outdoors just after 7, Saturday mornings, Sunday evenings at 7, and Monday mornings at 5 right here on B93.3. You can also stream the show live at BrainerdOutdoorsRadio.com, and we're downloadable wherever you get your podcasts. We're all over the podcast networks. Just search Brainerd Outdoors. We'll see you next week for another edition of Brainerd Outdoors. I'm Brian Moon. Brainerd Outdoors has been brought to you by The Power Lodge, SCR Northern, Thielen Meats, Weimert Outdoors Archery Pro Shop, S&W Bait & Tackle, Oars & Mine Marine in Crosby, Sports Custom Fish Houses, Bermel Shoe Store in Randall, and by Radco, your truck accessory pros. Join Brian Moon Saturday mornings at 7, Sunday evenings at 7, and Monday mornings at 5, right here on B93.3.